0: Welcome to the Movie Robcast review episode of the classic Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Just a warning before we get going, that this does contain spoilers for the classic Christmas movie, It's a Wonderful Life. So if you haven't seen it yet, please watch it as soon as possible, because it's so brilliant. And also, we don't want to spoil anything for you. Now, on with the show. Well,
1: who are you? I told you,
2: George,
3: I'm your guardian angel. What is it you want, Mary? You you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down.
4: Welcome
3: home, Mr. Bailey. Mandel
5: Hogwarts. I wish I had a million dollars. <laughs> Hot dog! Mr. and
0: Mrs. Martini, welcome home. This is what I wished for. Oh.
6: You see, George. You
3: really had a wonderful life. Ah! (laughs) Yeah! Merry Christmas! Look, Daddy, teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings.
0: That's right. That's right. (laughs) Hello, and welcome to the Movie Robcast. I'm your host, Rob Daniel, and as always, I am very happy to say that I am joined by my co-host. It's a wonderful co-host. It's Mr. Rob Wallace.
5: Good, 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 good morning, Mr. Daniel.
0: Oh, good morning, Mr. Wallace. And...
5: <laughs> Yours is better than mine. I, I think we should just keep doing this for the whole episode.
0: I can't see them getting annoyed with that. What mine sounds
5: like. <laughs> Yours sounds like uh, Mr. Magoo doing... Uh... It does.
0: Where did I leave my Jimmy Stewart accent? Uh...
5: Yeah, I'm going to stop doing that now.
0: (laughs) I think we've lost them already, actually, so we could just keep on doing it. Well, this is kind of a bonus episode because when we were planning the Christmas episode, lots of people wanted to talk about It's a Wonderful Life. And rather than being Mr. Potter and saying, no, you can't do that, it just made much more sense to say, all right, then we'll just do another episode on It's a Wonderful Life. So in this episode, you're going to hear... Lots of lovely guests talk about It's a Wonderful Life. So we're just going to intro it, really, and then we'll do an outro at the end. But yes, It's a Wonderful Life, the movie Rob cast review, I suppose. Yeah, you know, I think it's pretty good, isn't it? People seem to like it. Yeah, it's lasted through the years, hasn't it? And uh, so, one of the guests... Sarah Johnson will talk about how that really came to pass in the 1970s when, like one of our previous episodes, Night of the Living Dead, they just didn't renew the copyright on this, so therefore it went into the public domain, which meant that lots and lots of stations in the States could show it not royalty-free, because one of the interesting things about it is even though the film itself didn't have the copyright renewed, the person who wrote the short story, and we'll get on to that in just a second... But the person who wrote the short story did renew the copyright for the short story. So therefore, as it was based on the short story, the TV channel still needed to pay some kind of royalty to him because it was based on his intellectual property. But it was nothing like what they would have to do to license a film from a studio. So therefore, it was still pretty cheap to show. And from the mid 70s onwards, it kind of began to be established as a classic because lots of people saw it. Shall we give a quick synopsis about what the film is about?
5: Yeah, are we going to IMDb or are we going to wing this one, so to speak? Well, what is the IMDb? For old time's sake, shall we have a look at the IMDb? For old Lang Syne, let's have a look at the IMDb. And then we'll inevitably have to talk around it. An angel was sent from heaven to help a desperately frustrated businessman by showing him what life would have been like if he would never existed. A desperately frustrated businessman? That's so weird.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, anyway, oh, yes, yes, what it's about is, um, oh, IMDb, you never fail to disappoint. So it is, of course, about George Bailey, played by Jimmy Stewart, or James Stewart, as he's credited here. He plays a man who, through his life, always tries to leave the town of Bedford Falls where he lives so he can go and see the world and live this amazing life of adventure that he thinks is his due and it's his dream. But there's always something that keeps him in the town. And it's normally centred around family and the buildings and loan company that he owns. That is um, that is, um father, Ryan. That's right. Yeah, so it's and, a... and he
5: always ends up in a position where if he doesn't stick around and run it, it's going to go under and Mr Potter, the miserly Mr Potter who's kind of like the slum
0: lord is going to take over it, take it over. That's right. And Mr Potter is played by Lionel Barrymore. So he finds himself settling in the town of Bedford Falls. He marries Mary played by Donna Reed. They have a family and things go from bad to worse when his uncle loses some money and He's going to look like he's stolen this money. He's going to be in disgrace. So one Christmas Eve, he thinks, well, he's told by Mr. Potter, you're worth more dead than alive. So he thinks, well, if I kill myself, then at least my family will be saved. And of course, he's very, very despondent. So he thinks that's the best course of action. So an angel played by Henry Travers called Clarence Oddbody is sent down to talk him out of killing himself on Christmas Eve. And he does this by showing what the world would look like if he hadn't existed and of course it is an absolutely terrible place and he realises that one man can make a difference is reinvigorated and learns to want to live again and to be happy for what he's got and to realise actually that he has led a wonderful life and yeah it's kind of a masterpiece I think it is one of those films that in many many different ways is just an absolutely brilliant example of filmmaking the film was released in 1946 directed by Frank Capra and Frank Capra... He's an interesting guy, really interesting. He was a brilliant filmmaker. So he made films like It Happened One Night, which is a great screwball comedy. He was the first film to win the big five Oscars at the Oscars. He also directed Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and You Can't Take It With You. Um, and they both starred Jimmy Stewart. And he also directed another film called Meet John Doe, which was really good as well. He was someone who his films championed the little man and it was one guy against the system. And that's what became known as yeah, his signature story, which makes it really, really disappointing that when it came to the time of the McCarthy witch hunts, he was given the opportunity to be a character in one of his own films, and he failed. He didn't name names, but kind of decided to sit it out and keep his head down, partially because he was investigated and his films were investigated by the US government for possible communist subversion. And that put the frighteners on him and he didn't speak out. And there's a very good book written by Joseph McBride. I think it's called Frank Capra, The Catastrophe of Success. And Joseph McBride was just loved Frank Capra when he was writing this book. But as he did more and more research, he actually learned that Frank Capra wasn't a very nice guy and ended writing the book not really liking the subject. Yeah, very interesting man.
5: Yeah, I mean... It's also interesting because, you know, like Mr. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is in some way a very conservative film. It's also pro filibuster, which definitely hasn't aged well.
0: It hasn't, and it is a conservative film to modern eyes, but at the time it wasn't. I mean, just the fact that he's a young man at the time was radical. I mean, it's one of those things where, yeah, it all looks very conservative now. But yeah, at the time it was like, these are progressive politics. And I think that the filibuster was brought in for good reasons. And of course, it's now just something that means that Republicans can just block any kind of legislation. It's such a stupid idea anyway. But you can see why it would appeal to America with its sense of drama, because it's a great ending to the film when he talks for 24 hours. It's like, yeah, that's a very, very cinematic and dramatic ending to your movie. So Capra looked at the 1943 self-published short story, The Greatest Gift, which was written by Philip Van Doren Stern. Which was actually something loosely based on a Christmas Carol, which is something we talked about at length on the last episode, which was our big Christmas spectacular episode. And in that episode, Ronan Bird made the observation that "It's a Wonderful Life" is kind of like a reverse Christmas Carol. This is about a good man being taught a lesson, rather than a bad man being taught a lesson at Christmas time. You say it's a, it's, a, it's interesting that the Scrooge-like
5: character in the film, Mister Potter, doesn't undergo a conversion. He doesn't even get, like, a traditional villainous comeuppance.
0: Yeah, that's the one thing, actually, that's really, really surprising about this film. And when I first saw the film, I thought I'd missed something. I thought I'd just missed a line of dialogue where it says, oh, yeah, he's been arrested because everyone knows that he lied about you stealing the money or something. But there isn't. He doesn't get any kind of comeuppance. And there's a couple of theories for that. One is, as we're going to... Hear from a guest. It's a film that was investigated for possibly being a communist movie Jesus. and for being an anti-banker movie, which again shows. But it's my God, when you're investigating, it's a wonderful life. A friend of mine at university who loved this film, I think it was his favourite film. He said, and I'm not sure if this is true, and I'm not, and I think it might have just been something that he heard, but um it might not be true. But he said either that it was written that Mister Potter was going to have a comeuppance or that they actually shot it and it was cut because Lionel Barrymore was such a popular actor at the time that the audience didn't like to see him being punished even if he was the bad guy. But hmm. I've looked around for that to see if there's any credibility to that. And I've not been able to find it anywhere. So I think that might have been something that he, I don't know, read in like a magazine or something that might not actually be true. But it would be interesting because I think the line of Barrymore was a popular actor. But it would be like, he was so popular that audiences didn't want to see him punished playing, <laughs> it has to be said, the evil Mr. Potter.
5: Yeah, the uh, it's odd. I think in that case, it's like, yes, yeah, Star Power, well, it's still a thing, not to the same extent it was in like the golden age of Hollywood. But I think you've just misread the, you know, the narrative. Well, this character needs to have their comeuppance. And if casting the that actor, you're not able to give the character that comeuppance, then maybe you shouldn't cast that actor. But, you know, Nothing against Lionel Barrymore. He's very good in it. But that does seem like a bit of a nonsense.
0: Yeah, so I'm not entirely sure how much truth there is to that. But it is strange that Mr Potter doesn't get the comeuppance. I mean, you could say that it's in keeping with the Christian spirit of forgiveness. But it's not even forgiven, it's just kind of forgotten. But anyway. Yeah, so Frank Capra actually self-funded this film. It cost about 3.9 million to make, I think, and was shot over 90 days. And the Bedford Falls set was four blocks. I think it was maybe the biggest set for a town that was built up to that point. I've actually seen a production still of it. And it is amazing when you see this massive street and then you look at the ground and you see it's all on rollers. And it's like, oh, look at that. (laughs) Because of course, it's all covered in snow as well. And he actually had a new sort of snow designed so it could fall silently because before then snow was painted cornflakes and it was so noisy they (laughs) had to, it was so noisy they had to re-record all of the dialogue. He wanted to capture the live performances. So therefore he said, well, I need a silent snow. So he put a lot of effort into this film and he also put his own money into it. And it needed to make about $6.3 million to break even. It made $3.3 million, so less than its production cost. It was a massive flop. And it kind of meant the end of his career as a really, really big director. He did make films after this, but he never really had that same cachet again. Because he was a massive director during the 30s and into the 40s. But after that, he was seen as someone who couldn't really get a hit, which was true. Because, I mean, his films afterwards, he didn't really have a hit after this.
5: I'm now imagining uh, him, not to be morbid, you know, Frank Capra standing on the bridge going, my life is ruined. (laughs) But then actually, quite charmingly, you you know, you then show him the impact. And I know that, you know, he lived about the age of like 92, I think. Uh, So he did actually get to live to see the impact that this film had on popular culture, though, you know, he probably wishes that he got
0: paid a bit more for it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, So James Stewart's in it, and you can't think of anyone else playing... George Bailey, other than James Stewart, but Henry Fonda was also considered for the lead. Um, Have you heard of someone called Jean Arthur? Yes, why have I heard that name? Well, she was a really, really big actor during the 1930s and into the 40s. She's great. I mean, she's really, really great. She was with James Stewart in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and You Can't Take It With You. She's also in The Devil and Miss Jones. She was a really good screwball comedian, but also could do the emotional stuff as well. She was the first choice for Mary, but she passed because she was suffering from work exhaustion. So it went to Donna Reed, who was borrowed from MGM. And it would be interesting to see Jean Arthur, because she could also bring what's required to the role of Mary. But it's one of those things where it's like, well, it has to be Donna Reed, right? She's so perfect in this role. Yeah, and and she and James Stewart have such wonderful chemistry. um, And Jean Arthur also shared really, really good chemistry with James Stewart. But yeah, you're right, I don't think that they would have had the same kind of chemistry as Donna Reed and James Stewart have in this film. Oh, she's so great in this movie. You're, you're on the moon,
5: Mary. <laughs> Ooh, he, he, I think he got it that time. He did not get it that time.
0: <laughs> but it saves me having to look for a clip on YouTube. <laughs> but James Stewart had to be talked into doing this film, and all films, because he was a pilot during World War II. He flew some of the most dangerous missions of the war. And he came back and it's, and it's interesting because when you look at his post-war career, it's much darker. And he considered just not doing films after World War II because he'd seen so many horrible things that it was like, he just thought it was a bit frivolous to go back to play acting. But it was Lionel Barrymore who talked him into doing it. And I think he says something like, isn't it more noble to try and make people laugh and be happy than to drop bombs on them? And that kind of brought him round. If he hadn't returned to Hollywood... We'd have missed all his collaborations with Hitchcock. That's right. So he's (laughs) great. And Frank Capra in 1946 said that he made the film in part to combat a modern trend towards atheism. And it's really interesting because it is a religious film because it's got an angel in it and it starts off with presumably either the archangel Gabriel or maybe even God sending Clarence on his mission. But its I always think of it as quite a humanist film because I'm an atheist so therefore I'm not going to respond to the religion as much as other people who are religious I suppose. Yeah, I mean
5: I think in the same way that A Christmas Carol Fred says in his opening speech apart from its sacred origin if anything can be apart from that. Yeah, this is a humanist film in the same way that Christmas Carol is a humanist book. Mm. It's ultimately you were saying earlier about Capra's all about always about you know the little guy who's going to be crushed by the system but stands up for himself and is supported by the community. So it is in its framing religious, but I think as an actual text, yeah, it's it's very much more towards the humanist side of things.
0: That's actually perfectly put. It works the same way as A Christmas Carol.
5: Very interestingly structured. It works because, you know, when you talk about setup, you assume it's going to be boring, but it's really well executed. And it's the point of the film in itself. But yeah, the first half of the film sets up all the events and puts George in a position. So when you see the world as it would be without him, it's basically paying off all those separate individual instances where George did something that affected the world in a positive way.
0: Yeah, that's right. Including the character of Viola, who you get the impression has led quite an exploited and damaged life. She's played by Gloria Graham, who was absolutely fantastic in a Humphrey Bogart film called In a Lonely Place. But she's also great in everything. I mean, like she was like a bit of a femme fatale sometimes. And she's in this movie. Yeah, you see what she becomes when George isn't around to stop her from selling herself short with some of her life decisions. I suppose the film could be criticised now for like being a tale of a white man telling everyone what to do, including the women. But it's like, well, I just yeah. yeah. I mean, that's that's one way to look at it. But it's like I think that's that's missing out on a lot of the magic of this movie. I mean, yeah, again, that's you know, 1950s
5: cinema, 1940s, but also 1940s cinema. Sorry, yes, 19 yeah, that's kind of that's mid 20th century No, I was about to say American cinema, but I think just cinema. That's right. Up to I would say maybe a couple of years ago. Yes. What do you think of its wonderful life then? I think it's a genuinely good film on its own merits. And obviously it has become a classic, which, you know, the two things
0: are somewhat intertwined. Mm. So I would have been about, I don't know, 17 when I watched it. It got better as I watched it. And it has to be said, as I got older as well, because it is one of those films where it spans 20 years of George's life. He's supposed to be 38 at the end. As you get older, I think the film takes on more resonance as well. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a film that makes you take stock. Yeah, indeed. All of our guests are going to talk about why they think it's just so great. And I mean, they just say it much better than I could. But are there any particular scenes in this that you think are really great or memorable?
5: All the stuff during George and Mary's courtship is just really charming. It is, isn't it? It's so well done. I'm not the biggest fan of romances in kind of broad, what could be, you know, schmaltzy Hollywood films. But again, the the chemistry they have is just so perfect. And it's done with
0: such a deftness of touch that it's just, oh, this is, this is just delightful. Absolutely. Cool. Okay, then. Well, let's move on to hearing from our guests. First up, we have Sarah Johnson. Sarah describes why she loves the film. And also she goes into the film being investigated by the US government when it entered the public domain and also what happened to it during the years of Trump's presidency. Take it away, Sarah. And now you're going to hear from a Movie Robcast regular. If you've listened to the Christmas episode, you'll have heard her already talk about classic Christmas films. And she's now here to talk about another classic Christmas film. So welcome back, Sarah Johnson.
7: Lovely to be here. Thanks, Rob.
0: It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. I'm not going to give any kind of big preamble because I just want to know what you think of It's a Wonderful Life.
7: Well, I love It's a Wonderful Life. I don't see how anybody can't. Anyway, it is in everyone's hearts. as a great Christmas film, isn't it? Although, with the exception of the author Connie Willis, who can't stand It's a Wonderful Life, and uh, in an anthology of Christmas stories, actually wrote her rebuttal to it. So if you're a fan of really, really good uh, American fiction, look out for Connie Willis's uh, Christmas tale, which is why she doesn't like A Wonderful Life. But she's, you know, even then, I think her tongue's a bit in her cheek. But um I love it. I mean you can't go wrong with the, the story of, of the the incredibly kind George Bailey being driven to near suicide by, by money stolen by an evil banker and then one of those films as well, when you think it starts with somebody about to commit suicide essentially. And then he's he's shown by a kindly angel who is yet to get his wings that his life has meaning. I mean, it does what all Christmas films do, which is it, it talks about family and kindness and a time of the year when you need to be thinking of others, but also shows that everybody's life has meaning that you may be more important than you realize and also it's interesting for me because it's in that post-war tradition of fantastical kind of magical realism i i would put it's a wonderful life in the same bracket as a matter of life and death and i think they, they came out didn't they in the same ish year i believe 1946
0: that's a really interesting point it absolutely ties into the fantastical versus the very very realistic yeah
7: yeah, the magical realism, the parables here and the fantastical is here. And and it also tied to there was a, a big push post-war as well for kindness, for for equality, which given what everyone had been through, you could see where it came from. And if I I'm going to talk a little bit about, because I think everybody knows the film. I mean, it's in that beautiful tradition. You think about Dickens and Christmas Carol of somebody, you know, George doesn't need to be shown that being kind and being there for other people is important. He just needs to understand that his life matters in every single way. And without it, these people would be less. Unlike obviously Scrooge, who needs to be given a shock that he's going to hell to actually be a nice person, but what's really interesting about the film I find really interesting is that um, it was investigated uh, by uh, J. Edgar Hoover's kind of FBI group uh, for being uh, communist propaganda. So <laughs> it's really it's really interesting. It was um, there was a kind of scandal at the time. It was considered that it was they were trying to sneak in anti-capitalist propaganda to the masses and that Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett, who were the screenwriters, were close to known communists. And this is just how it treats bankers is unacceptable. And the FBI investigated it. There was a minor scandal around it. The studio didn't extend the right of license on It's Wonderful Life. So its contract of license... royalties and rights ran out after 28 years but what happened in the 70s was it ran out of royalty license so all of a sudden it's a wonderful life could be shown on what was then the growth area of local kind of television stations royalty free so it could be shown by everyone for nothing at college libraries at schools and so it had this real resurgence in the 70s and early 80s of being shown here there and everywhere because it was a way we all women we know, don't we, Rob, uh, what it's like to try and fill the airways. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So Anything that doesn't cost anything. But I think its subsequent life from the set back 1975, I believe, is when it came out of licence and was royalty-free, it being shown constantly on television channels, it being shown on public access, it being something people could watch at the library, at school, for free, gave it this whole other lease of life. And I like the idea that a film that is about kind of you could argue it's socialist it's about you know everything being available for everybody and something you know you can choose not to make a lot of money you can choose to help your fellow man all of us matter nobody is worthless everything has has meaning and things should be freely shared i love that then the second life of the film was built by it being made available in the most capitalist country on earth and freely available and watched by everybody so that's also what built the kind of real love for it and the story kind of then starts to reboot again. So under uh, the Orange Menace's tenure as um, the president, under White House rules, in about who's about 2016 to 2017 or 2018, they asked that It's a Wonderful Life no longer be shown at the White House, and it was no longer included in their recommended Christmas film roster really? because it's anti-capitalist. So
0: isn't that interesting? That's I did not know that.
7: Yeah, these things go full circle.
0: Wow, that is amazing.
7: Yeah, I mean, the film itself is a beautiful thing to watch. Uh, my wife absolutely loves it. It's, it's one of her favourite films. And her and her son and I, we normally watch it on Christmas Eve. And it's interesting, too, because obviously George Bailey is a banker. He's a good banker. I don't know. It, it's also interesting that he, his character has all these dreams and wants to go off and travel and achieve and feel all these things. And oh, you know, it feels like he's failed because he's not going off and doing any of that stuff. And, and then he you finds you find out on that wonderful night with the angel, or terrible night, however you think of it, sometimes you are more than all the sums of your parts you think you are and actually all these great things you think you can do you've already done something so great by being there with the people you love by trying to help others by living your best life and I think especially with what's happened over the last few years with the pandemic I feel like I watch It's a Wonderful Life anew because it is something that's saying that all of us are better than just one of us and that we need more equality we don't want any more inequality and that everybody needs a chance and needs to be helped and if you have a chance to do that then you should do it and so i think it's got more resonance again now considering it's, it's such an old film it's i can see why it's had a bit of a renaissance as well so, so i enjoy it on many levels not least because the craft of it is beautiful and i absolutely love any i mean he's he's so good isn't he the angel as um henry Tra- is it travis or travis Travers. Yeah, his Clarence. It's a great performance. And it's absolutely in, in keeping with the kind of he could be in Dickens. It's that kind of esoteric Christmas character. It's a lovely film, isn't it? And meat on its bones.
0: Oh, that's great. It's And it's really interesting that it's like, it was investigated as a socialist film. Because it's like, well, it can be seen as socialist.
7: It's humanist, I would say.
0: Oh, it is. It's um, yeah. It's weird, isn't it? Because it is humanist. I mean, it's obviously like a religious film because it's got an angel in it. And it's all about the fact that if he commits suicide, then he's going to lose his soul. Is like...
7: You're one
3: of
0: the things that's sort of hinted at. But really, you're absolutely right that George, he's a banker, and that's the family business. I think what it's arguing for is regulation, and you can yeah. see why that was also something that the government or that the FBI wouldn't be very pleased about, because America just over the next few decades would just completely slough off all regulation. and now Yeah, we... and
7: become greed is good, wouldn't they?
0: Yeah, that's right. And now it's kind of much closer to the Wild West in some ways in yeah. terms of their decision-making, Yes, I owe to have regulated capitalism. <laughs> that would be so good. I
7: mean, this is the interesting thing with the film when you look at um, Potterville as opposed as opposed to you know Bedford Falls and how how it becomes so. Potterville, in some ways, is more prosperous, I guess, or or, or capitalist. I mean, it has jazz clubs and it's it's a much bigger city and you have you know all this stuff going on. But there is such deep inequality mm. that actually it is is almost hellish, and it's really interesting to see that as the thing that him not being there leads to this worse version of it. And it's not a version where they're poorer. It's a version where people are actually, or there is more money there, but the inequality is deeper. And then when you look at what's happening in society and you look at what's happening in America, but also in this country, You know, this is the way things are going. Inequality is is such a huge problem. And I think one of the nice things about It's a Wonderful Life is it's saying that that doesn't help. Just because a few people are making money, it doesn't mean that everybody else is all right. So, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> You kind of think to yourself, God, can you imagine if it was made now, who would make it? And would it even get budgeted? I mean, I don't know, Ken Loach. <laughs> so,
0: yeah, I just don't think that it would get made now. I think it's one of those things. Well, it would, where... but not
7: in that way. I think it would have a lot of that stuff stripped out of it. I think it would lean into the whole fantastical stuff. I think it, you know, mm. I don't know, really. I mean, I think about Scrooge, thinking about the Bill Murray Scrooge. I love Scrooge, don't get me wrong. But it basically boils out some of the socialism, doesn't it? It just makes it that you know, be a nice person or you'll go to hell, as opposed to yeah,
6: that's right. no,
7: no, you need to need to make things less unequal. Otherwise, you'll go to hell. Yeah,
6: that's it.
7: And I would say it's a wonderful life's message is every life has meaning, everybody matters, which therefore means we must treat everybody the same, and everything needs to be more equal. Was the other thing I like about the film is that you think about when it was made. There's a lot in there about the particularly Italian immigrants. And that's still a timely discussion that's being had around the world now, how we treat people who come from somewhere else to where we live. And so he is welcoming, George is welcoming and supportive of his new Italian neighbours and of the immigrants who come to the area. And Mr. Potter is not. And I think that's really interesting because obviously who the people are, I mean, this is Italians, who the people are change. I mean, there's a horrible bit, isn't there, where he talks about them as being rotten garlic eaters, Mr. Potter. And mm. I always find that really interesting because Capra was, of course, an Italian immigrant himself. So that's interesting, too. And you kind of you look at how much of Trump's rhetoric was about, you know, getting rid of the immigrants and stopping people coming in. And it's, it also is a nice reminder that some things uh, have always been there and are universal and that things can be awful, but then also things can be better. And that uh, um, ultimately, human beings are capable of the most amazing, awful stuff and the most amazing, beautiful stuff. Sometimes the same person can be vile and wonderful. And so I think all of that is in It's a Wonderful Life. I think It's a fantastic film.
0: Oh, that's absolutely beautifully put. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for that. That was such an interesting listen and great insight into a film that has just been scrutinised over the years. So thank you very much. And if people want to hear more of your thoughts, where can they find you on the internet?
7: Come and shout at me on Twitter. I'm strapping lass. uh, And I always enjoy talking to people about most things, but especially film.
0: Well, I strongly recommend that people do go to look at you on Twitter, not to shout at you.
7: (laughs) Well, you know. But
0: they can engage with you in some spirited debate
7: always always good
0: <laughs> well thank you very much for coming on and have a very very merry Christmas
7: And the same to you
0: you're you're thinking of this place all wrong as if I had the money back in a safe the, the money's not here
3: well your money's in Joe's house that's right next to yours and in the Kennedy house and Mrs Maitland's
0: house and a hundred others you're lending them the money to build and then they're going to pay it back to you as best they can and what are you going to do foreclose on them Next up, Adrian Zach talks about why he thinks that It's a Wonderful Life is the greatest Christmas film of all time, its emergence in the UK in the early 1990s as a Christmas favourite, and the slightly unfortunate politics of James Stewart. Now we're going to hear from a regular contributor to the Robcast, Mr. Adrian Zack. Adrian, welcome
8: back. Hello, thanks again for having me. <laughs>
0: It's always a pleasure. Yes, so our listeners would have heard Adrian talk about his favourite Christmas films on our Christmas episode. On this one, he's going to be talking about what he thinks of It's a Wonderful Life. So Adrian, is it a wonderful life?
8: This is the greatest Christmas movie of all time. I love this film, Beyond All Reason... I've seen it as a kid. I do do remember it. But I remember actually, weirdly, it was Empire really championed it when it came out on VHS. And their review actually almost made me blub at the time because they said, just getting by is enough. And it was just like, that's such a nice turn of phrase, particularly for this film. I've seen it a couple of times on the big screen by myself because when there's something gets in your eye, you don't want anyone to be watching you. <laughs> it's a great film to watch with an audience. Fucking dark, <laughs> so. I mean it it really is. And people forget that the happy Christmas bits only really the last twenty minutes or so, but he gets put through the ringer before that happens. But it's a beautiful film.
0: One of your Christmas selections that you talked about in the Christmas episode was Krampus, which of course is a very, very dark Christmas horror film. But everyone seems to forget that it's a Wonderful Life is a dark movie.
8: Yeah. Borderline horror. I mean, it's Twilight Zone, Black Mirror, whatever. I mean, all of those things owe a debt, I think, to It's a Wonderful Life. Because he didn't exist, all of those troops died on because That's his right. brother wasn't there to say. Well, Butterfly Effect is the other film that owes probably owed uh, to wonderful of a huge debt because this is showing exactly what happens one person's life how it touches everyone else's and you know it's jimmy stewart at his most jimmy Stewartist although we had this conversation a few weeks ago and he perhaps was a little more right-leaning than
9: <laughs> yeah than we nice. think
8: but it's, it's just a beautiful film and it's just funny and touching. And you've got the real villain and well, back to the future too. Another film has this huge debt where you see what happens when it turns into, um, Biffville or whatever or Trump town or whatever it is. <laughs>
6: That's right.
8: I mean, it's a few things aren't particularly well handled. I mean, the fact that his wife becomes a spinster librarian because he wasn't there. It's like, yeah, okay, guys, thanks. Give us some agency. But the other bits, the pharmacist, the brother, all of those things, and it's incredibly bleak. And then... That final scene where the townspeople come round and, you know, he's at his lowest ebb and he's going to go to jail and everything like that because of evil Mr. Potter. It's heartwarming. When I left the job many years ago, one of my leaving presents was a Jimmy Stewart It's a Wonderful Life action figure, which comes with a basket of money.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That is brilliant.
8: It's just utterly, utterly charming. But yeah, it's it's actually incredibly dark as well. But Christmas is like, I mean, it's like the, the Mr. James stuff. I mean, people are like being scared at Christmas. There's certain genres work really well at Christmas. And I think something like this, where it's got a bit of grit to it, is great. And Frank Capra, again, not necessarily the nicest man around, made one of the <laughs> classic Christmas movies.
0: Yeah, indeed, definitely. and it's But it is one of those, I think that's the genius and also the majesty of the film, is it sells you, so you don't even really think about it until like a few viewings in. Okay, so he's the only person of real value in that town? He's the only leader, sorry.
8: Yeah, I think it's about how one person can make a difference. Yeah, I mean, indeed. It's a... And it's Jimmy Stewart, so it has to be. If Mr. Smith goes to Washington, you know, someone else probably could have done that.
0: But you always buy it a lot more if it comes from Jimmy Stewart, that's right.
8: Of course, yeah. I mean, he can sell anything. I think, even the fact that he's a nice man.
0: Yeah. <laughs> for our listeners, I kind of slightly disappointed, or I, <laughs> okay, how can I say, I ruined Jimmy Stewart for Adrian a couple of Saturdays ago when I told him that Jimmy Stewart is someone who supported the Vietnam War, even though he lost a son in it, and was not entirely convinced by the Civil Rights Act.
8: So we're very much separating the art from the arts.
0: But it doesn't take away from the fact that this is a really wonderful film, particularly just like, well, as the years go by, it's just the film that's left and that's what you interact with. So, yeah. yeah, think we got out of that all right.
8: <laughs> I think it's still a wonderful film. No jury will convict you, even in Potterville
0: on that note thank you for sharing your thoughts and your love of it's a wonderful life
8: my pleasure i'm off to go and see jimmy stewart and bite my tongue <laughs> i'm shaking the dust of this crummy little town off my
0: feet and i'm gonna see the world italy greece the parthenon the Colosseum. then i'm coming back here and go to college and see what they know and then i'm gonna build things I'm going to build airfields. I'm going to build skyscrapers a hundred stories high. I'm going to build bridges a
3: mile long. What is it you want, Barry? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down.
0: Now, Lucy Buglis discusses her love for the film, how it still resonates to this day, and how progressive it was at the time in dealing with mental health issues and that loneliness that a lot of people can experience at Christmas time. Now, we have another guest who's going to tell us what she thinks of It's a Wonderful Life. You will have heard her on the Christmas episode if you've listened to that, and if you haven't, then I strongly recommend that you do. And welcome to this episode, Lucy Buglis.
10: Hello, thanks for having me once again. Always appreciate coming here.
0: Oh, it's always a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, so now we're going to be talking about It's a Wonderful Life. I have no idea if you like It's a Wonderful Life or not, so I am looking forward to having this discussion with you. So I suppose we should start with that question it's a Wonderful Life. Is it a wonderful film, or is it one that leaves you a bit cold?
10: Oh no, I think it's brilliant. I think it's, because the thing is, I'm quite, I'm a kind of a self-confessed sort of classic film newbie, I'm not going to lie. Like, there's a lot of classic films I haven't really seen or learned a lot about, so it's not my kind of area of expertise. However, I think It's a Wonderful Life is brilliant, because it was made, you know, all those years ago in, in the 40s, right? But it was, is it the 40s? Yeah. Yeah, sorry. See, this is what I mean. I don't know what what, what bloody era I'm in the 40s. Yes, sorry. But yes, I think it's more sort of, it's so relatable to this day, kind of the concept of it. I think it's aged well in the sense that people can kind of relate to the core message and the core values even now. And that's why it's so great to me.
0: So when you say relate, in which ways can they relate to it?
10: Unfortunately, a lot of people experience mental health issues and, and maybe feelings of loneliness or horribly so even maybe they've had suicidal thoughts I mean it's not a nice thing to go through it's the reminder of the impact that you have as a human being and you know that the people around you like genuinely care about you and it's an important thing and for that era you know mental health was still so taboo it's quite a remarkable achievement really for me I think it's a very yeah. important conversation to have
0: well it's interesting because the film came out in 1946 so was made after Jimmy Stewart had returned from the war yeah yeah and he was a pilot during the war and flew some of the most dangerous missions over Berlin. He obviously saw a lot of death and destruction. And he undenied about going back to Hollywood because he saw it as really frivolous to be making these films. But his films after World War II are much darker than his films before World War II. And It's a Wonderful Life. Did you know that it had these dark elements to it before you watched it?
10: Yeah, I was very much aware of the concept behind it. And to be honest, I was quite shocked because I think, I believe it has a a U rate. And is that right? It's quite a family friendly film. Mm, So the way way it was able to sort of address these without them being too explicit or too triggering was quite impressive, really. Um, So I I was aware of them. I'd seen the Simpsons parody of it before I saw the actual (laughs) film, shamefully enough. Um, But I knew what the parody was. And yeah, I just think it's it's incredibly well done, especially for, you know, a wider audience, because topics like this can often be sort of classified a lot higher, given, you know, the controversial and, and upsetting nature of them, if that makes sense. So I was very yeah. much aware that that's what it covered. So I was interested to see how they handled it.
0: Oh, interesting. So when did you first watch the film?
10: It was a university. So it was back when I was doing my degree, because, you know, I was kind of doing a module on films like this. I didn't choose a classical film module, but it was part of the film history module that I did. It was one of the obviously the, the key ones, you know. It's, they show you all the all the big ones, and I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, um, it really kind of struck a chord with me. Like I say, just the way it, it handles things, and I got quite upset actually, but in a good way because it was quite an emo- it's a very emotional film. It's, it's it's a lot, especially for a seasonal film. I think there's a lot of films at Christmas that kind of you know quite frivolous, but this is more serious. Really, it had an impact on me that I didn't think that it
0: would. Yeah, I think that a lot of people are surprised when they go to it and see the impact it has. And also, I think because it's called It's a Wonderful Life, everyone knows it as the perennial, ultimate kind of Christmas film, that they're expecting something quite light. And it's like, no, this is, ironically, perhaps the darkest non-Christmas horror film that there is. But it's the one that everyone thinks is the most lovely. and it's. uh... But no, there's a lot of stuff going on in there. It does really land the ending, doesn't it, in terms of pulling the heartstrings and...
10: Yeah, I mean that, that ending it does make me cry, honestly. <laughs> it's that note as well at the end as well. It just really God, it just it just gets me man. <laughs> <laughs> especially you know around Christmas time and and the seasons it's a stressful time for a lot of people even to this day I think you know you've got things like seasonal depression maybe some people are stressed about funds for Christmas and how they can afford it and it can be quite distressing for people but I think the ultimate message of this film is you know like I say there are people around you that do love you and you know you have your family and your friends and your community and you'd be surprised how life might be different if you weren't there and that's obviously the key message of it and it's just timeless in the sense that a lot of classical films may not have aged quite well and certainly on a technical level there are things that you can tell distinctly like 40s but the the key message is going to kind of be there for the rest of time really and that's i just adore that about this
0: film yeah it's really nicely put so when you watched it at university what were the elements of it that you were studying
10: it was more the influence on on film history as a whole. So we were doing all the forties, the fifties. It was sort of it was very kind of like generalized periods of of film that we were doing. It wasn't more of an in depth study, but it was kind of one of these like you must watch this to understand forties filmmaking, if that makes sense. You know, it was more to do with the cultural impact and how it's influenced pop culture. You know, we did talk a little bit about the Simpsons parody of it and how it's still being discussed. It's more how films like this can go on to be timeless, like I said. Like it's that's essentially what we were looking at.
0: That's the thing is that it's such a varied film that you can approach it from lots of different ways because we sorry, I studied it at uni as well, and it was more about the difference between a plot and a story. So the story is kind of like, yeah, you know, what happens in a chronological order, but a plot is very, very different, is the way that it appears in film. And with this of course, there's like a fantasy sequence It's like, well, does that happen? Well, yes, it does happen, but it doesn't happen to any of the other characters apart from George and uh, Clarence. But it happens to other versions of everyone you've seen up to that point. And it's a really sophisticated film in terms of how it tells its story. And I think that's overlooked in terms of why people love this film so much. I think it's just an absolutely brilliantly written script.
10: Oh God, yeah, absolutely. Like I say, especially for its time, and and not to criticise films from that time, because I know obviously they, they mean a lot to a lot of people, but I think this is certainly like a standout because it's just so different from other Christmas films. I think you could go into it thinking that the script would just be kind of whimsical and oh, you know, like Christmas, everyone's happy, but it's not that at all. There's a lot of characters and there's a lot going on, and you kind of feel immersed in, in that community, don't you? It's sort of it's a heavy film to talk about when you think about it. it. It's, just, it's, just, it's a lot. <laughs>
0: It's a deceptively heavy film to talk about because it is like, yeah, the value of someone's life at the end of the day. And the film really does a fantastic job of landing that. So yeah, when you walk out, it's like, yeah, that was lovely and great and life affirming, but that was a lot to unpack in that movie.
10: Yeah. And not only that, obviously you have the responsibility of of the angel who has to earn his wings by doing what he's doing with the central character. So there's kind of the the responsibility on this ethereal being, you know? (laughs)
9: Hmm.
10: to do something right and to help humanity and it's there's a lot of biblical themes and a lot to one pick and it's there's a lot you can talk about
0: i think my favorite bit in the film is a slightly odd bit but it's when george first realizes that he's he's in hell basically when he goes into the alternate reality of pottersville is it and there's a moment when he looks and he looks directly down the barrel of the camera in absolute horror because another thing i like about the film is just how it mixes up its genres and It becomes a bit of a sci-fi movie when it goes into that alternate reality. And that moment when he looks down the camera, it's like, Don Siegel would steal that shot years later for Invasion of the Body Snatchers. This is a film that has so many different moods and tastes to it, and they all are blended in so beautifully, and that it's all just summed up in that shot of Jimmy Stewart just looking down the barrel of the camera in absolute horror when he sees what's happened. But do you have a favourite movie from the film? Sorry, a favourite moment from the film?
10: I just want to quickly just mention, like, I didn't realise, like, that kind of sci-fi element. That's a really good comparison. Like, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, you're absolutely right. I get excited when people pick out things that I hadn't even spotted. That's incredible. (laughs) What a cool connection,
0: though. Well, to that point, it was only when I saw it on a big screen that that shot even really resonated with me, because I'd seen it on video a few times. And then at uni, when it was projected in the viewing theatre, it's like, this is a really brilliantly made film. And that shot was like, how have I never noticed how brilliant that shot is? And at that point, it was like, oh, yeah, this is completely switched its genre. Um, Always something to reward on a rewatch with this movie.
10: Yeah, absolutely. I think my favourite moment is probably just the bit when he realises what's going on. And and then he begs to have his normal life back, because Mm. it's a turning point in the film. It's sort of a, you know, seeing the light kind of moment, like, oh, my God, you're absolutely right. I want to go home. I want to see people like, I don't like this universe that you've put me in. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a very distressing scene. Again, kind of almost horror elements, like, oh my God, I'm trapped in this thing and I want to get out, like, get me out. <laughs> um, Which is probably yeah. quite unexpected from a film of this nature. Again, if, if you went into it not expecting the, the, the deep themes that it covers. Technically, it's just a standard scene, really, but I just think the interaction has always stuck with me.
6: Yeah,
0: and I'll try and get the sound clip for that because you're right, it is absolutely brilliant. And James Stewart absolutely delivers it yeah yeah, impeccably it's just played straight there's no irony to that scene yeah the only way that that could really land is to play it absolutely straight as he begs for his old life back uh, it's so good
10: yeah and i think sometimes you don't need a bunch of like fancy sort of uh, cinematography and that kind of thing sometimes just like i love just straight one-on-one dialogue or straight monologue. And i love i love the monologue that's my kind of thing um, i love really strong dialogue like that and that definitely is what happens here so yeah if you can find the clip that would be awesome so everyone can sort of experience that
0: Well, I think that'll be a wonderful place to end it on, unless you have anything else you want to say about the movie.
10: No, I think that, honestly, that's everything, because I feel like you could just be here forever. But I just think, like, <laughs> on, on the whole, for me, it's just, it, it was a pleasant surprise. Again, surprised how much it, it can still, you can still relate to it in 2021. You know, it's, it's the same concepts that people still deal with. It's, it's incredible. And I think everyone should watch it at least once in their lives.
0: Fantastic. I completely agree. Okay, then, before I let you go, where can people find your work on the internet?
10: my blog is uh, LucyGoesToHollywood.com all my reviews are on there um, if you want to follow me on social media I'm at Buglis, which is my name or my TV Time podcast is at TVTimePod we're on hiatus at the moment but we'll, we will be back I'm very active on Twitter so if you want to chat anything I'm always around
0: cool well thank you very much and again have a very very Merry Christmas
3: Clarence! help me Clarence!
0: get me back! Get me back, I don't care what happens to me. Get me back to my wife and kids. Help me, Clarence, please. Please. I want to live again.
10: I want to live again. I want to live again.
0: Next up, we have Mark and Elaine Gregerson from the Honeymoon Period podcast. Elaine describes how her first time seeing the movie was on an early date with Mark, while Mark explains who the film's true villain is and why the best Christmas presents always come with a caveat. Now, you are going to hear from a couple that, if you've listened to our Christmas episode, you would have heard them already, and I strongly recommend you do listen to it because they were so great on that, and I'm sure they're going to be brilliant on this. No pressure, guys. It is, of course... (laughs) Mark and Elaine Gregerson from the Honeymoon Period podcast. Hey! Hello! Welcome to the show. So we are going to be talking about It's a Wonderful Life. I am presuming that you've seen it. Would I be correct? Yes. You are.
9: Great. I think the big difference with this film to other films we've spoken to you about is Jaws, and to promote your other podcast, Highlander, are very much Elaine films,
0: whereas this is 100% a Mark film. Ooh, very interesting well, let's go from there. Uh, So why is it 100% a Mark film?
9: I don't think It's a Wonderful Life was famous in the 90s in the UK, because
0: I remember it being
9: mentioned in Friends on an episode where Phoebe's watching films that she didn't see as a kid or that her parents didn't let her see the end of, and going, I've never heard of that film at all. So I came to this pretty late and I think it was the late 2000s or mid-2000s where Kermode and Mayo did a rundown of the top Christmas films. And I spent that Christmas watching every single one of them um, mm-hmm. from the 1st of December, if you've listened <laughs> to it on the previous podcast. <laughs> um, and I think went through Black Christmas and Santa Claus versus the Martians and a lot of rubbish and then got to the number one, which was It's a Wonderful Life, which I watched on Christmas Eve. Oh. And I just fell in love with it there and then. Yeah. Was this not famous in the UK in the 90s? Or did I just completely miss it?
0: Elaine, would you know the answer to that?
4: Uh, no, because I completely missed it as well. Maybe that's the answer to the question. I completely missed it as well. I, It wasn't something that I knew as a child. It wasn't something that I really came across until I met Mark and he kept talking to me about it to the point of extreme irritability. So it's just, you know, if you see it, you must see it. It's the best Christmas film ever. How? Why haven't you seen it? I can't believe you haven't seen it. So yeah, (laughs) it completely passed me by as well.
0: It's interesting that because my natural instinct is to say, oh no, it was known during the 90s. But it's like, well, it was known to you, Rob, because you just lived and breathed films when you were a teenager. So therefore you knew it. I think it was. And there's a couple of reasons why. One, I mean, I knew it because it was the film that's playing in Gremlins that the mum's watching on the telly when she's... Uh... Um, I, think, I think she's making dinner. But Empire did a very good piece about it, I think in 89 or maybe early 90s. And then it was released to buy on like a budget label. And I think I actually bought it for my mum one year for Christmas. And that was the first time that we saw it. But it was one of those where it steadily grew over the 90s. And it probably was because of things like Friends and stuff like that as well. So by... I think it was 99 was when um, it was re-released at the cinemas and me and a friend went to see it. So yeah, I think it's one of those that it kind of steadily grew through the 90s is my understanding of it.
4: Mm, that's really interesting.
9: But yeah, ever since then, it has been a Christmas tradition for me to watch it. You, How many times have you seen this film?
4: <laughs> Mox looking at me. Yeah, uh, I have seen it once.
0: <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's well worth going back to. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what can you remember from that one viewing?
4: (laughs) I remember I was on a date with a a rather handsome rascal sat to to the right of me. Funnily enough, he had gone on about it so much that he took me to see it at a beautiful independent cinema up in Newcastle called the Tyneside Cinema. And the promise of the film, was with good company, was one thing. But also, there was a group, uh, a singing group, called the Cornshed Sisters a band who were going to be singing beautiful acapella Christmas songs before the film. And that in itself would be lovely anyway. But the thing that really attracted me to it was that one member of that group was, as she was then known, Marie Du Santiago from Sunderland pop punk 1990s band Kinnicky that was oh, fronted right. by Lauren Laverne. So the idea of going to see... Someone who was in Kiniki, which was like a, the time when the albums, the Kiniki's albums came out were a real like seminal time for me in the 90s, like real teenage years. And I remember sitting in my bedroom, just playing the album over and over again, really loudly and being really like angry. <laughs> so, you know, that's that sort of time in your life. And the idea of just going to see one of Kiniki singing Christmas songs to me uh, before a film was just so exciting. And it was beautiful harmonies and they sang all these gorgeous Christmas songs. And then we watched it's a Wonderful Life and it, it. I think the cinema's brought it back again this year so you can go and have these Christmas showings of It's a Wonderful Life. I'm sure I'm going to get dragged there at some point. But I've only seen it once and it's at the cinema with Mark.
0: Wow. Mark, when you were at that same screening, were you just watching Elaine to see how she was reacting to the film?
9: Yeah, this is what happens every time I take Elaine to see a film. Like, I think the first film I took her to see it with, that I'd seen before was Hard Day's Night and realised that she wasn't a Beatles fan at all. And as much as I said, it's a seminal pop movie, she just sat there (laughs) stone-faced. And then I took her to see the original Godzilla, the uh, Gojira, the Japanese version, and I was sat there getting real excited and you just sat there stone-faced and oh. at least at this point you know it was come for Kanicki, stay for George Bailey and um, yeah I think you got more out of this than you did the other two films I took you to
4: I, I think. You, I think this is a major misrepresentation actually because both of those films did have a real effect on I me. Mean, we we after uh, Gojira in particular we sat and talked about the film for quite a long time and I think I just might have one of those faces because if you recall Mark a couple of days after we got married we went to Liverpool and went to see was it the like bootleg Beatles or was it it Beatles? Like, it was, it was Beatles. just the Cavern Club. It was band the, well, we theater. went to the Cavern Club and the in Be- the Beatles, and we went to see the Beatles' um, Love Show in Las Vegas as well. So I went, I walked down the aisle to a Beatles song. I'm just, I'm just, so yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so um, slight like misrepresentation, but maybe those were the things that that uh, brought all of that into my life.
9: I don't think you would, <laughs> you've, I don't think you've revisited Hard Day's Night at any point,
0: have you? No,
4: no, I haven't. But I did want to call our son Ringo. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh. <laughs> but Mark what is it about the film well first of all how many times do you think you've seen it
9: I think it's at least once a year since 2005 so it, what's that 16 times give or take maybe a couple of viewings when I've tried and forced to learn to watch it a couple of times i forced my parents to watch it one year as well so um, yeah probably pushing 20 it is a Christmas tradition for me it's normally what I watch when I'm wrapping your presents actually which oh really is, is it yeah oh. yeah That's so nice. I think it's, obviously it's massively ahead of its time with its sort of structure and everything like that. And also it kind of deals with mental health. I think we all admit that Christmas is a tough time for people now, but I can't imagine that was necessarily at the forefront of people's minds when this film was released. It seems to have an interesting sort of view on mental health, which I don't
0: expect when I'm necessarily watching a film from the 40s. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's... This is not a happy, feely Christmas film. This is actually deals with some very, very dark things.
9: And one of the all-time great baddies. Uncle Billy. <laughs> I'm, I'm convinced if in an alternate universe, there would be a film where Uncle Billy never existed and everyone had a lovely life. Because
0: he messes things up for everyone. That's interesting that you see him as the baddie because, he, yeah, he is criminally incompetent. Yeah, you're right, actually. He is actually the devil's pawn in the film. Okay, there's more to explore there. If George Bailey's dad had gone into
9: business with a competent businessman like George Bailey he'd never have to stay behind he wouldn't have lost the money I mean obviously Potter is the real baddie of it but I think Uncle Billy is either working for Potter undercover or just absolutely
0: useless should have been fired a long time ago it's fun to think that it's the former (laughs) yeah (laughs) there's a whole side film to be made about him (laughs) scheming with Potter is this film in public domain now? Because I can just take those characters and just write it. But um...
9: oh, it can't be far off. Get it written, and then it's going to pass in surely in the next sort of twenty years.
0: Well, that's the thing. Was this is one of those films that famously they didn't renew the copyright. So the reason that it became a Christmas classic is because in the states it did go into the public domain. So therefore all the regional smaller channels could just have this movie so they played it over and over again. And I think it was like the 70s when it was rediscovered because it was a flop when it first came out and then just forgotten for years. But then in the 70s when all the small regional channels started to play it, people realised what a great film it was and it just got this second life.
9: Wow. I I hadn't realised it was that sort of late that it came into the public attention in America. I just thought it was just something like... Over here, where, where just me and Elaine had never never heard of it. <laughs> no. but apparently, everyone else was loving it. But yeah,
0: uh... it's, the, it's the weirdest thing that when it came out, it was a flop. And the reason why it's in the public domain is also the reason why there was a colorized version of it as well, because anyone could do whatever they wanted with it. So the colorized version was, I think, it was first on video in this country during the eighties, and it was just rubbish. But then they released the black and white version. And it was like a much better print. And anyway,
9: I refuse to acknowledge that version of it. I bought my parents it for Christmas one year, and made them promise me that they would never ever put in the colourised disc.
0: <laughs> oh, what, was it actually released on DVD in the colourised version as well? Oh,
9: yeah, it was it was a two-disc set with the black and white version and the colorized version. So we had to have a very stern conversation on Christmas morning where, right, when you open this, there's two discs, but only play one.
4: It's really yeah. fun in the uh, in the old Gregerson house at Christmas when Mark's there, you see.
9: All the best gifts have caveats with them. Uh... Yeah, that's right
0: going to make a snowball and then I'm going to tell you why you can never watch the colorized oh, version. You've, oh,
4: you've been here, have you, Rob? Yes, <laughs> yeah, you've, been, you've been watching, yeah.
0: Brilliant. Okay, then, well, before I let you go, is there anything else that you would like to say about It's a Wonderful Life? How annoying is the hee-haw guy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know he sends a lot of money at the end, but
9: I'd have had him out of my life in no time. <laughs> like, he would be removed off Facebook instantly.
0: <laughs> or at least muted. Brilliant, Elaine. Is there anything you want to say about the He Or guy? <laughs> oh,
4: no, you see, I don't know who that is. But in a stra- even stranger twist, I'm not that keen on that little girl with the whole angels' wings r- ringing bells. That's a bit annoying, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, can, I can hear a big sigh and a bit of like, you can't say that about the kid at the end.
0: I think I think that's sacrilege. <laughs> No, it's it's a laugh because it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, she is the most saccharine little girl. But then again, she is also the heart of the ending.
6: I Um, know,
4: I know. You know what it is? I think it's because it's that part of the film that i've seen on all of those countdowns that you get at christmas time where they do this you know the top 100 christmas films and that's the section they show with the little girl with you know the angel wings ringing Belgium
9: i think alyn's doing herself <laughs> a discredit here because she will always do an impression of the girl in a really whiny voice which i think you need to include on the podcast
4: no, no. I'm,
0: that is going to be included and um, there's also going to be a few hee-haws as well <laughs> Well, on that note, thank you so much for joining us again to talk about It's a Wonderful Life. And uh, before I let you go, would you like to tell people where they can listen to the Honeymoon Period podcast? I'll do it this time.
9: Thank you. You can find all our podcasts on any place where you find podcasts, but also at thehoneymoonperiod.com. And you can find us on Instagram
0: at thehoneymoonpod, as well as Twitter. Well, thank you very much for that. And I suppose the only thing that's left to say again is... Please have a very Merry Christmas.
10: Hee
0: haw! <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks.
6: Good old George. He's always making a speech.
5: Hee haw!
2: Sam Wayne,
0: Who cares? Next up, Tessa Scott. And Tess joins us having just watched It's a Wonderful Life for the first time only hours earlier. She tells us her verdict and also her thoughts on Mary played by the legendary Donna Reed. And now I'm very happy to say that Tessa Scott, who you would have heard on the Robcast, is joining us to talk about It's a Wonderful Life. And this is going to be particularly interesting because, Tess, somehow you managed to avoid watching It's a Wonderful Life all of your life until today, and you watched it for this episode. So one, thank you very much. And two, wow, okay, so I can't wait to hear what you thought about it. Before we get into that, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. Good to be here again.
0: Before we get into what you thought of It's a Wonderful Life, what did you know about the film before you watched it?
1: They talk about this film on Friends. Is it Phoebe that's watched It's a Wonderful Life? I can't say that I ever remember my parents watching it. Yeah, I probably knew about it from Friends. Probably disappointing you by saying that.
0: No, not at all. It's... um and isn't it in friends that she watches it in a different way so she
1: (laughs) i was trying to find that part where phoebe's mum would have switched it off because it got too sad and i was like is it this part is it this part
0: so you watched it today so it was i think literally a couple of hours ago is that right
1: Yes, and I was very prepared to not enjoy it because our track record of you getting me to watch films <laughs> has not always been smooth sailing, Rob. <laughs> but
0: no.
1: I'm happy to say that I really liked it. It uh, warmed my heart.
0: Oh, brilliant. Okay, then. So what about the movie did you like?
1: What struck me is how it was made. it was made in the 40s, right? Yes. But the story was so timeless and I could absolutely resonate with his experience and just feeling trapped by responsibilities and wanting to do the right thing and do right by people and then missing what is good about your life because you're trying to hold on to dreams that you had when you were young and the life you think you should have all of that kind of stuff I just thought wow it's it's amazing that people today struggle with the same things that they were struggling with so many years ago and then at the end when everyone was coming to his house and and he could see how much he meant to people. I even got a little bit teary-eyed. I just thought, oh, this is so lovely. And I wasn't expecting it. So, yeah.
0: And um, I find as I get older, I get more emotionally affected by the ending. When I was a teenager, I was like, yeah, that was good. Yeah, fine. <laughs> <laughs> but as you get older and just get more life experience, it's like, actually, that does tend to resonate a bit more. And uh...
1: Also, that part. Do you want the moon, Mary? I'll just throw a lasso around it. I'll give you the moon, that one, that part. I've heard that so many times and things, and I just never knew where it was from. And so when that scene came, I was like, ah, this is the lasso around the moon quote.
0: <laughs> was there anything else in the film that you thought, ah, oh, that's what this is from? No. <laughs> no, just that. <laughs>
1: Should there have been?
0: <laughs> the film became quite famous for him seeing his life if he'd never been born, and that whole sequence. And I wondered, because yes. that's been done in so many other things now. I wondered how did that play to you as someone who's coming to this film for the first time.
1: I kept on waiting for it to happen. Like I think when I read the synopsis on IMDb, it said he looks at his life as if he hadn't been born, and that's it's only in like the last twenty minutes or so, so of like a two-hour movie. So I kept on waiting for that to happen. So I thought the structure was really interesting that that only happened so late, but then it all made sense. And I think it all deteriorates so quickly. Like, it gets very dramatic in those 30 minutes. Like, he's not been born. And, I mean, the whole town has gone to shit. And, I mean, like, people are living in poverty. And, God forbid, Mary, the worst thing ever that could happen, she becomes a bookworm. (laughs) She wears glasses. She works in the library. I just love how like her life going wrong was what did they call her? An old maid.
0: Yes. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. really yeah.
1: made me laugh.
0: Because Donna Reed is so great in that film as Mary. It's just such a an amazing performance but it really is a film from the time in terms of the worst thing that could happen to her is that she never finds a man and she becomes a spinster and she
1: (laughs) becomes like a little spinster at like 20 or something (laughs) an old maid
0: yes at 23 (laughs) and i was gonna say so that didn't kind of annoy you or take you out of the movie you just bought that as uh as from when the film was made
1: yeah there was nothing really that i thought was uh because obviously you, you know me i get get offended by things sometimes, but I didn't. I don't know why I didn't. I think because it was like, nothing was mean-spirited or just... She was great. She was a really good character. I felt like she was empowered and took control of their home and made her own decisions. I thought she was a really great character for... Film that came out of the forties.
0: Yeah, and it is one of those things where because she's so great, and as you said, so empowered. The fact that she is just such a timid little mouse when he sees her, and she gets so scared <laughs> yeah. when she's Mary. Mary, don't you recognise me? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I
1: love that. It just made me laugh actually. When I mean, everything had been so bad, and then I was like, oh, what's what's Mary going to be like? I mean, the fact that she was just coming out of the library with glasses, perfectly normal, and that was terrible. Uh, I just, yeah, it was just it was funny more than anything. Um, but yeah, it gets so intense and, and so dramatic that I get that they couldn't have had that be too long uh, a part of the film and it still being a Christmas movie. Yeah. But yeah, it was very sweet.
0: And just very, very quickly, what did you think of James Stewart?
1: I liked him. I kept on thinking it's so different from the leading... He's so different from leading men in films these days. It was more like gentlemanly than just sex on legs. <laughs>
0: yes, I never think you know I of <laughs> sex on legs when I think of Jimmy Stewart. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, I mean, he's no Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> but I liked him, yeah. I mean, the age gap thing, I thought, was interesting. I mean, how old was he versus her? I don't know, I suppose that was a thing back then.
0: Well, that's the He thing seemed is- quite
1: old to be how old he was playing.
0: That's interesting, because audiences, I think, in terms of where this is placed in the episode, are going to hear another guest talk about that as being something that really really took them out of the film that Jimmy Stewart just looks so old when he's supposed to be a college student that they couldn't really buy into it and there's an element that yeah, years ago everyone looked 100 years old from about the age of 15 <laughs> but it's also one of those things, I think because it's an old film always just thought yep yeah, that's just the style of filmmaking Yeah, that I'm watching but yeah you're not the first person to say how old is he supposed to be during this film
1: I kind of forgave it for that I, I think just because I know that that is a thing from older movies, I was like, oh, he looks very old, she looks very young, but you know, it is what it is. I think he didn't have as much charisma as, what's her name, is it Donna Perry? Donna Reed. Donna Reed, sorry. I thought she had a bit more charisma. I think it's, maybe it's also back then, like, a, you know, being a gentleman and a good bloke. Um, maybe I'm just used to modern films where the leads have a little bit of a little bit of charm.
0: Or like an edge to them or something.
1: Yeah, yeah. He was just very straight-laced. But, yeah.
0: I mean, I think that's part of the film in terms of he just feels denied all these experiences and has never been able to do what he wanted. And then at the end has to be shown, no, actually, your life was quite extraordinary. So he's, yeah, he kind of has that everyman thing. Yeah. And did you think it was a darker film? Because I think it's one of those films that sometimes surprises people in just how dark it is or how dark some of the themes are.
1: Definitely. I think, I don't know what I was expecting but maybe something that was a bit more quaint or, oh, sweet, but hit on some pretty real things. And I really empathised with his character and just felt like it's a question that people still don't have the answer to these days. And I I just thought they handled it all very well.
0: Did you like Clarence, the angel?
1: Yes, I thought it was an interesting take on an angel. They were so short, though. I can't say he left a massive impression.
0: So actually, one thing I'm going to say is that there are a lots of people I know who watch this as kind of the last Christmas movie before Christmas Day. So thank you for watching it on the 20th of November so we could record this. i would kind of force you to watch it a little bit earlier than you should be watching it. So I'm glad that you liked it.
1: I get that. It's very life-affirming. It leaves you thinking, oh yeah, I should appreciate the things that I have in life and... To get that message just before Christmas and the value of family. I totally get that. Oh, you know what scene I loved is when Sam, the guy that likes her phones, and they both have to listen in on the phone together. So oh, yes. their faces are very close and they're kind of looking at each other and the tension between them when they just. Oh, I was like, oh, that's very nice. <laughs> I'm here for this. This is great.
0: It is nice when old films do that
1: Yes, when they did finally kiss I was like, more, give me more and Then I was like, oh, this is an old movie I'm not getting any more <laughs>
0: <laughs> It's a wonderful Fifty Shades of Grey
1: Oh, yes Should do a remake <laughs> Um, What else did I like? I was going to say Oh, I think also that he kept on saying Oh, he wants to travel And he wants to build things And then he didn't realise That he had built so much for people And helped them have a home so he was missing what was right in front of him that was sweet
0: yeah it's so lovely
1: yes when he was gonna jump in off the bridge i thought sure yeah this is quite dark actually when you say it's quite dark is that what you mean
0: yeah but also like yeah the desperation as it goes on that he just isn't able to get out of the town and it's always something that calls him back because he seems to be the only competent person there and uh... (laughs) i mean there is something about the end where it's like so no one else in the town could have stood up to potter yeah
1: (laughs) yes yes. and and just because of him he was the only one saving the town from being completely overrun and everyone becoming horrible and living terrible lives yeah (laughs) it's what you would think everyone would imagine oh if i wasn't here what would the world be like and I don't know, I suppose if maybe if you arrogant, she'd be like, oh, everyone's lives would be terrible when probably everyone would be fine. (laughs) (laughs) I certainly think Mary would have found somebody else and gotten married.
0: I think someone would have snapped her up, definitely. (laughs) Yes,
1: I mean, she was gorgeous and just a fabulous person. I'm pretty sure she would have found someone.
0: It's one of those things where it's like, okay, so Donna Reed couldn't find anyone else. (laughs)
1: Only the books loved her. Okay, yeah.
0: and even when you put her in like a thick coat and glasses, she still smoulders. <laughs> I mean, it's just yeah. a different kind of smouldering. So
1: better, if anything. Oh, she's nerdy as well.
0: <laughs> it's like, oh my god, I'm going to say. a bookworm dream girl. <laughs> if there's nothing else, and this has been a wonderful chat. So thank you very much.
1: Oh there you see, you said wonderful again. I feel like I've gotta say another pun back at you. Rob, it's been swell.
0: It has been swell, and I suppose the only thing to say is Merry Christmas.
1: Yes, Merry Christmas, and I look forward to being invited back.
0: That would definitely happen and it will be a wonderful podcast. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Mary, it's George. Don't you know me? What's happened to us? I don't know
0: you. Let me go. Mary, please. Oh, don't do this to me. Please, Mary. Help me. Where's our kids? I need you,
8: Mary. (coughs) Help me. (coughs) Mary, Mary. let
10: me go.
0: Our final guests are Sarah Buddery and MJ Smith from the Let's Jaws for a Minute podcast. One of them has issues with It's a Wonderful Life, while for the other, it's one of their favourite movies. And, as a special festive treat, we also get to hear another example of Rob Wallace's Jimmy Stewart impersonation. And now we're going to hear from
3: Sarah Budry and MJ Smith. Hello, hello. Hi. <laughs> well, I believe that one of you, uh, if, I, if I understand it, is not in fact the biggest fan of It's a Wonderful Life, and the other one's quite fond of it.
6: <laughs> yes. It's a Wonderful Life is fine. I actually feel similarly to MJ to It's a Wonderful Life is as Sarah is to Die Hard. It's <laughs> fine. Um It's not a bad movie. Like, I can't say anything against it. I don't think it's terrible. Um, But it's not a film that I grew up with. And I think a lot of people have that, like, nostalgia attached to it. And... I'm not saying that it doesn't work on its own. Like, it's a perfectly coherent movie. It kind of has Dear Evan Hansen disease to me, because he, at at least at the beginning of the film, Jimmy Stewart plays, like, a he's back from college. He's supposed to be, like, it's supposed to be his Christmas break from his first year of college. But he was, like, 38 (laughs) when they made the movie. (laughs) So it's really, really weird watching this guy with, like, laugh lines go to this high school dance (laughs) with the 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 pool in the middle of the gym like that is real weird to me it's exactly how I felt about Dear Evan Hansen this year it's exactly how I felt about uh Timothy Chalamet and Dune this year where he's a 25 year old actor and that character is 15 although that's not brought up in the film it's so distracting in the first half of the film and then the rest of it I think might be a victim of me having not seen it Early in life, like I've just seen It's a Wonderful Life formula done because it's been copied so much. I've seen it done so many times that by the time I got to the real thing, kind of, I was like, oh yeah, I get it. You know, there was nothing, not that I need to be surprised by every piece of media that I watch, but I just was like, yeah, this is beat for beat every other time I've seen this story done in, you know, whatever sitcom or cartoon or other film or whatever that has done it. So for me, it just kind of, it's not a nostalgic favorite that I grew up loving, and so it is kind of fine. Like I, Jimmy Stewart is good in it; he's a great actor, but it's not really a go-to in my household, really at all.
3: And Sarah, in the uh, the
0: case for the defense. <laughs> Actually, could I just interject there? Just a couple of things. So. So MJ, when it actually gets into the section of the film that it's really famous for when he sees what life would have been without him, mm-hmm. do you think that's quite good in terms of the way it seems to shift its genre and goes from a drama and then goes into sometimes like a film noir or something and then ends up almost like as a fantastical science fiction horror film? It's uh, I think that the genre blending is quite interesting. What do you think about that?
6: So I think that might be a point of a sticking point for me. And this has nothing to do with the film itself. I have a really hard time when a film does that. And that might be I've never really thought about it switching genres, but it totally does. Another film like that where and I might need to revisit it and I might need to revisit It's a Wonderful Life because I haven't seen it in a really long time. Knowing that it is going to genre hop the way it does is this is a this is the first time anyone's ever compared these two films (laughs) Danny Boyle's Sunshine is a film that started off one way and like becomes a slasher film in the back half and I really didn't like it because it jumped into that other genre that I wasn't expecting so maybe it is that one I've seen the formula done before but when I've seen the formula done it's always been set up of like hey this is going to happen because it's a wonderful life and it's Almost never the initial like character uh, characterization stuff that happens at the beginning of the film with him coming back from college and his family and getting to know his dad and the sort of like family drama that it is. It's usually just the oh, w- what if I wasn't around, you know, look at my life. Um, so it's only half of that formula, right? Or half of that film when someone condenses it, obviously, into like a 22 minute episode of television or whatever. So once again, not necessarily uh, the film's fault, maybe my own little hangups with like the things that I like or the things that I, you know, expect from a film and, and then having those kind of played with and not really being able to leap immediately from where we were to where it's headed.
0: Okay, Sarah, I think it's time for you to put on the white vest and to put a cigarette in your mouth and and tie a fire hose around yourself and jump off the burning building and, uh, yes, uh, defend its wonderful life in what is obviously, I think, the weirdest way to segue you in. (laughs)
2: Uh, Yeah, at least for now, anyway. I'm sure there will be weirder at some point. Um, I love this film and I didn't grow up with it, so I did come to it. Um, a bit later. Uh, I can't remember exactly when but ever since I saw it for the first time it is now like a a Christmas staple for me and is also one that watching it and not just watching it but watching it at the cinema every year has sort of become part of one of mine and Martin's um, Christmas traditions so uh, from the year we first started going out apart from Covid year because you know Covid. We've always gone to see it like at the cinema together. We always try and see it sort of pretty close to Christmas. I think this year we're booked to see it the sort of Saturday before Christmas, I think. And it's just a film that I I never get tired of. And I really like the sort of genre changing aspect of it because I think that on the surface, it just appears that it is this very sort of sweet and saccharine Christmas film and it is that at times but it also has this melancholic edge to it and it is a lot darker than I think it appears on the surface and and that whole bit when it is sort of you know well this is what life would be like if I if I wasn't here that always happens so late into the film or much much later than I remember it happening because The first is, and I've not watched it since last Christmas, I'm saving myself for uh, when I go and see it at the cinema, but that sort of first bit of, you know, finding out how he gets to that place where he is is on the bridge contemplating taking his own life is the bulk of the film. And the sort of journey he then goes on to realise what life would have been like without him is actually comparatively short.
3: I I guess um, they kind of need to set up what life is like with him in order Mm. so they can show the contrast. So they can say, well, you were here for X. Here's what it looks like. Here's why if you weren't there for it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And and I like that it's done in this way rather than sort of flashback form because i think the other way of telling the story is to start off in the dark place and what if i wasn't here sort of thing and then you're getting the flashbacks to the other things that have happened or the, the bits that he perhaps didn't appreciate and the happier times and you know when he met his wife and having I mean, the kids and everything like that so i think that really works because you sort of see you know it does have happy moments his life isn't completely terrible it's just that sort of series of quite bad things happened and that led him to that dark place but yeah i just (laughs) i love that this film isn't even though it is obviously set around christmas time it's not super christmassy Mm -hmm. but it's strange to watch it at other times of the year just because of where it ends up you know the, the the sort of famous scene of them all singing and the the christmas tree and and everything else it feels weird to watch it another time but like right up until that point it's not really that Christmassy. <laughs> you could take the sort of christmas element out of it and it still just be a really good drama and i think that's that's one of the things i like about it so much but yeah particularly special to me personally as obviously one that me and my now husband <laughs> watch together every year and sort of make a point of doing so and actually last year even though we we couldn't get to go and see it at the cinema we watched it at home with my parents who we were living with at the time and i don't I think my mum said she had never seen it, although I can't see how that would have happened. And my dad said he'd seen it, but a very, very long time ago. So even though we weren't able to like go to a theatre and see it, we still had like a nice memory of watching it all together. And it sounds super cheesy, but you know what? This film is quite a cheesy film, and I think that it embraces that, but I, it, it isn't just pure sweetness, you know, sickeningly sweet from start to finish. Yeah, Like something, the thing that springs to mind is... is the holiday even though that has moments as well but that is sort of you know the really over-the-top lovely kind of christmas film this isn't that i think because it does go to that darker place but yeah that's uh many reasons (laughs) why i love this film
0: i think everyone who sees it for a second time if they haven't seen it for a while forgets how dark it is and everyone who comes Mm. to it for the first time is just really surprised at how dark it is But I love the fact that the whole point is that it's he thinks he's going to lead an extraordinary life and he actually just leads a normal life
6: mm-hmm.
0: but then has to be shown that his life was extraordinary. It's such a wonderful idea and it's just done in such a brilliant way, I think. Okay, shall I go for my Jimmy Stewart impersonation? Shall I cue this up?
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> are we ready?
3: <laughs> okay, you know, you're sitting you know are going to walk me, 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 your and my money's not here, but Bill's house, it's a Ted's house. Merry Christmas, you good old Bedford Falls.
0: <laughs>
2: surprisingly not
0: terrible. <laughs> no. what well, it actually was like surprisingly recognisable. Yeah, <laughs>
6: I could tell you were doing.
2: <laughs> Been practising that one. <laughs>
0: You knew you guys were coming
3: on. Well, we, we skipped <laughs> over my Alan Rickman when we were talking about Die Hard, so I had to...
0: <laughs> oh. <laughs> but one thing, Rob, did you come to this as a kid? Because I didn't. It was one of those things that I came to this as an adult as well, so I don't think anyone on this particular bit of the podcast came to this as a child. Okay. I Sorry.
6: I came <laughs> to this in my teens.
0: <laughs> I grew up abroad, so I didn't
3: necessarily... It wasn't like I was getting this, you know, I mean, I guess, MJ, did you kind of catch this at all on TV
6: when it was kind of still in the... uh, Is it still in the public domain? Uh, I don't know if it's still in the public domain, but it airs on TV every year here. So no, I didn't. My parents were very blue-collar, I guess, is the the way to describe them. But anything kind of slow or contemplative they weren't really on board with. Uh, They liked spectacle in their films. So it's actually... I don't know how the hell I ended up being as into movies as I am because (laughs) I did not like really grow up going to a lot of movies. I didn't really watch a lot of movies growing up. When I did, like I would love them. Like I fell in love with The Lion King very early. So a lot of the stuff that I became a fan of later in life, like I'm a pretty big James Bond fan. The first James Bond movie I saw was Casino Royale because my parents were, oh, also anything with an accent in it, they did not like (laughs) Yeah, they thought the James Bond movies were boring because they were British. Uh, sorry, everyone. Uh, <laughs> brilliant.
0: So have your folks actually watched It's a Wonderful Life? Did you get them to watch it when you watched
6: it? No, when I watched it last, it was with my wife and we were house sitting for a couple, uh, during Christmas time and they had it on DVD. So we watched it there. So I don't, yeah, my, my, my folks haven't seen it in forever. I'm sure they've seen it.
0: well to Sarah's point I would strongly recommend that we all try and see it on a big screen this year because it earns its place on the big screen I think Um, and Sarah I think you've seen it the most on the big screen would you agree with that
2: yeah yeah I I think I've watched it at home maybe only two or three times and one obviously was was last year because the, the cinemas were closed but pretty much every other time i've watched it has been on the big screen and there's there's something to be said um i think for seeing it in that way and in fact to mention the prince charles cinema again they're showing it i think in 35 millimeter so Ooh. a great authentic experience i think watching it in that way the cinema that we're going to see it at this year is one in portsmouth that martin used to volunteer at and he used to live around that way so number six cinema in portsmouth which is a great little indie cinema that'll be a nice sort of homecoming i guess for for him as well sort of like seeing some people who he used to work mm. with and mm. also their screen is massive like huge <laughs> so i'm very excited about seeing it there for the first time i could talk about what i love about this film forever i think i just i love the performances in it as well obviously so we had our our wonderful uh jimmy stewart impression I, the thing about the ages, the Dear Evan Hansen thing that you mentioned, MJ, I get it. I just don't, I don't (laughs) care enough to let it be a problem for me. I think that. It's harder to accept, I think, in Dear Evan Hansen because it just looks so weird because they've tried to do like the de-age thing and obviously mm-hmm. that technology didn't exist. So it's kind of like Greece, where it's just like, yeah, we know these people are 30 but you are going to believe they're teenagers and you are not going to care because you can enjoy the film anyway and that's kind of where, where I'm at on, on It's a Wonderful Life. But I just think that it is so lovely almost too lovely i think it like it risks (laughs) being saccharine but it isn't because it has like i mentioned earlier that darker edge to it and is just one that personally means means a lot to me and is one that i will continue to watch every single christmas i think until yeah forever
0: (laughs) well that was i think a lovely way to end the episode but before we go where can people find you on the internet
2: so me and MJ, uh, we host a podcast called Let's Jaws for a Minute, where we are going through the greatest film ever made, which is Jaws, uh, minute by minute or thereabouts. And uh, we are rapidly approaching the the end of the film. So we've been doing this well over a year now. And uh, it's just my favorite thing to do every week is talk about jaws and we have some great guests on like the the two robs who have been on for various episodes and just being able to talk about this film in this level of detail is a real treat uh, and that can be found wherever you find your podcasts and you can follow the podcast on twitter at jaws for a minute and the same on Instagram as well um, is is the best place to go to find all of our content. But yeah, we absolutely love doing it. So yeah, give it a listen if you like Jaws. If you don't, a uh, bit weird, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> still listen to it anyway. Uh, and you can find uh, me on Twitter. I'm at Sarah Buddery. Uh,
6: you can find me at M.J. Smith, 891 on Twitter, which means nothing. Um, <laughs> the the numbers, not me or Twitter. Uh, <laughs> we talked about that off mic, I think, but the numbers don't have any significance in my name. I also co-host another podcast called Real Perspective. That's R-E-E-L, Perspective. The logo's wrong if you look it up on Apple, by the way, but we're in process of getting that changed. And it's more of like a current release schedule so the two most recent episodes when you hear this will be I think Tick Tick Boom and Cowboy Bebop the Netflix series. Excellent Um, and Sarah could
0: you just tell our listeners about the Disney episodes that you did because I think there's a lot of that would like to listen to those as well.
2: Absolutely yeah I I did a series for Jumpcast going through the 59 Walt Disney animated classics so that was starting with Snow White and then going all the way through chronologically to Raya and the Last Dragon. Co-hosted that with one of my best friends Barry who is a big Disney fan and We had a wonderful time uh, diving into those films in a great level of detail and talking about the making of stuff as well, advances in technology and how the films changed. And if I had to highlight one particular episode for people to listen to, I would recommend listening to all of them, but the (laughs) the Little Mermaid episode. We honestly sound like we've been drinking or have taken something on that episode because we are both so elated to have reached that point. In the Disney series, because there's some (laughs) weird stuff in the 70s and 80s, so getting to that point was a was a real high point, and we had a a great time talking about that film. the The Disney Renaissance era was my era of Disney, so particularly enjoyed talking about the 90s films and Lion King, Beauty and the Beast, and all of those. But yeah, you can find that again wherever you find your podcast. If you just search for Jumpcast, and that is the podcast from jump cut Online, so you can find it on their website as well.
0: Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, guys. And I think the only thing left to say is have a very Merry Christmas.
6: You see, George, you really had a wonderful life. Don't you see what a mistake it would be to throw it away?
0: Well, that was a wonderful collection of thoughts and opinions about It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, it was really nice. Cool. Okay, then. So is there anything else to say about It's a Wonderful Life before we sign off? I'm sure there's a great deal to say, but none of it's coming to my mind at the moment. Well, to end, before we do the plugs, there is a wonderful Simpsons joke where Bart starts a run on a bank and it then goes into...
3: Just, just, just a second here! No, no, I, I don't have your money here. It's in Bill's house and
6: Fred's house. Hey, what the hell are you doing with my money in your house, Fred? <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, my mind's not here at my Bill's house, at the Ted's house. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then, so if people would like to find you on the internet to wish you a wonderful Christmas, where can they do that? You can find
5: me on Twitter, at Robert M. Wallace. You can also find my writing uh, at Of All The Film Sites, www.ofallthefilmsites.com. And we have another podcast that we do in, in addition to this one called Another Time MacLeod. An exploration of the film Highlander, a sort of a scene by scene breakdown, uh, which you can find wherever you're listening to this. Yeah, if you're a Highlander fan and think I might want to come on board uh, another time, McLeod, to, to talk about it, you can uh, email us
0: at whowants to pod forever at gmail.com. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I am at Rob underscore A underscore Daniel. And I'm just going to plug my book this week. So I have written a book on Martin Scorsese's Cape Fear. It is available uh, from Amazon and Waterstones and WH Smith. But if you go to the Liverpool University Press website and use the code WINTER21, you can get 50% off up until the end of December. And you don't have to remember any of that because I'll just put it all into the show notes. And if you want to follow this podcast, we are at Movie Robcast. If you want to leave us a review or a star rating wherever you listen to your podcast, please do. It always helps the podcast and it's much appreciated. And I suppose there's nothing else to say apart from...
6: Yay! Hello, Bedford
0: Falls! Merry Christmas, Movie House! (laughs) And we'll speak to you again very, very soon.
10: That's a Christmas present from a very dear friend of mine.
8: That's right.
0: That's right. (laughs) And a boy (laughs) cloud.